the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald will sit down with us today for an extended conversation about the decision she's made in the wake of the Oakland High School mass shooting. Why will she treat 15-year-old shooter Ethan Crumbly as an adult? Why is she charging his parents who bought the gun he used in the crime? And what would she like to see change with regard to Michigan's gun laws? We'll talk about it all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. And welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. It's one of the most shocking events we've ever experienced here in Southeast Michigan. Four children murdered inside their own high school, and several others badly hurt. And this time, it didn't happen somewhere far away. It happened just 40 miles up the road from where I'm sitting today. Three people are in custody after this shooting. The accused shooter, 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly, is charged with murder and terrorism, and he is being charged as an adult. His parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, are also charged with four counts each of involuntary manslaughter. They have all pleaded not guilty, and over the next many months, we will, I'm sure, see lots of twists and turns as they make their way through the criminal justice system. But there are lots of questions still about what happened that day at Oxford High School and what's happening now. This is the kind of event that doesn't just shock the conscience it moves us to really think pretty deeply about our values, our laws, the way we respond to tragedy and crisis. That's where we want to start the show today, with some of those questions about what happened at Oxford and what's happening now in the criminal justice system as a response. And we're going to start the show today with the person who decided a lot of what we're seeing unfold in the criminal justice system with regard to the Crumblies. She's the person who will be tasked with making the case against Ethan Crumbly and his parents in court. Karen McDonald is the Oakland County Prosecutor, and she joins us now. Karen, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. So... Let's start here. Um, walk us through your decision to charge Ethan Crumbly as an adult. You ran as a progressive prosecutor who has really emphasized reforms to juvenile justice and other things in order to rehabilitate offenders, especially young offenders. Uh, we've heard from a lot of listeners who've told us that although the crimes here are really heinous, they're a little uncomfortable with the idea of charging Ethan Crumbly as an adult. Um, and I think as someone who is enthusiastic about the idea of criminal justice reform and a lot of the things that are, that are changing, I also have a little bit of hesitation, I guess, when I think about that. And so I want you to just walk us through how you come to the decision that this is such a serious crime and uh, that it needs to be dealt with in adult court uh, with adult consequences. Well, I, I completely understand that. I did run on that platform and still believe we need to treat kids like kids. Um, however, I also was elected to be a compassionate and reasonable uh, prosecutor. And the factors that the law requires me to consider when we make a charging decision about treating 
an individual as a juvenile or adult are, um, are, are many factors, including the seriousness of the crime, but also uh, the, the role that juvenile took and um, the, whether or not it was a premeditated or planned. You have to look at a lot of things. The, the law also requires to make that, me to make that decision quickly because he's a juvenile and he's in custody. So based on all the evidence that I've seen, only some of which is public, mm -hmm. I think it's an appropriate charge. We still don't know a lot about how this individual got into a school um, with, a hand, uh, with a weapon and planned, premeditated, um, a mass murder. We, I, I will acknowledge we don't know everything yet, but what, what I do know and what I have seen is the, the charge is appropriate. The adjudication and the sentence and the ultimate conclusion about what will happen to him is yet to be determined, and the, the court and the prosecutor still have great discretion uh, to, to fashion an appropriate sentence. But it's also my job to care about public safety and care about victims of crime. Mm -hmm. And when you look at all of the facts here, again, only some of which is, is public, I think it would be really difficult for anyone else to make this decision, whether or not you're a lawyer, an elected official, or just a mom. So I want to go back to a, a phrase you use there, um, and you talked about premeditation and how planned this was. And I think that's a, a critical part of some of the questions that people have about how this happened and, and why it happened, why there weren't. I guess, better points of, of intervention to prevent it from happening the way it did. But that word suggests a, a level of judgment that I think is critical in the decision about how we treat offenders. No question so, this was premeditated and he thought about this, but he's a child and, and his brain, we know, is not developed fully. He is not someone who is making adult decisions. So I guess, and I'm not disputing, of course, anything that you're saying, because as you say, you've seen way more of the evidence than anybody else. But I want to, I want to have you talk just a little about that decision-making. Why is it, why is it considered adult decision-making given, given his age? The United States Supreme Court has been very clear about how we treat juveniles, and, and it has changed over the years, and I, I believe in that. When I took office, I, I reviewed over 20 juvenile lifers who the prior administration said should spend the rest of their life in prison without parole for something they did when they were 16. The reason and, and the um, justification for that is you're correct, brain development with regard to impulsivity. This is not, at this point, given everything I have seen and reviewed, is not like any of the juvenile lifer cases that we've reviewed or I even know about. Mm. And uh, again, there will be an opportunity if it's appropriate in the future to to fashion a a sentence or adjudication that's a, that's appropriate. But I am absolutely not going to make that decision with um, just half of the the facts. And I certainly would never make it without talking to the victims who've lost their kids and said goodbye to them mm -hmm. when they went to school and never saw them again. So I, I listen, I, these are great points to make, Stephen. I just don't think they're good points to make right now because these kids were just buried. And first and foremost, I'm, I'm, my job is public safety, and I'm also a mother. And I, I cannot fathom what these people are going through. And you're right. We're not supposed to just talk about the, how serious the crime is. All of the all of the, the the crimes we're talking about, they're they're murder in these cases. But this this is a mass shooting, mm -hmm. and right now at this moment, I think as a community we have an obligation to address bigger a, a different issue, and that is how we're going to stop this from ever happening again, mm -hmm. and how we're going to help this community heal, and how we're going to make every kid in this state and in this nation feel safe to go to school. That's what I really want to talk about. Yeah.
Yeah. So I, I do want to talk to you about that, and I want to talk about what you think some of the things we ought to be thinking about are in that in that regard. But before we get to that, I also want to talk about the other big decision in this case, and that is uh, your your choice to charge the parents of Ethan Crumbly with involuntary manslaughter. That caught, I think, a lot of people by a little bit of surprise as well. Uh, talk through the, the, the thinking there and the invocation of a law that we don't see used a whole lot here uh, in Michigan, a nexus here that allows you to, to, to make that charge? Well, I want to be clear. When we made that decision, and, and it was my my call, and there, I, I understand it now that it's not done. There hasn't been done in a school shooting situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it absolutely, from a moral standpoint, made sense. And I believe that those two individuals are criminally culpable. They had every opportunity to stop this from happening. It was absolutely foreseeable, and they they didn't. And I, I just couldn't find a way not, not to a path forward where we as a, as a county would continue through this case without holding them criminally culpable because they are. And, and, you know, if, if that decision has an effect on how as a, as a state or a nation, we look at uh, these sorts of crimes in terms of being responsible gun owners, then, then I'm absolutely, um, I, I couldn't, couldn't be happier if, if we changed something because we know we need to change something. We keep talking about these incidents when they occur and they're still occurring. So we can train kids to um, run, hide, fight. We can train kids to hide under the desk and <clears throat> do all of the appropriate things. And we can train law enforcement. And in this case, we did, and it, and it was executed perfectly and yet four children died, and so many others were were injured or victimized. And so I think we need to take a look at where are these weapons coming from and who owns them and who purchases them. And so I think it's an appropriate charge. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Karen McDonald. She is the Oakland County prosecutor. We're talking about the criminal justice response to the Oxford High School shooting, the decision to to charge the shooter, 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly, as an adult. Also, the decision to charge both of his parents with involuntary manslaughter with their role in providing him with uh, that gun. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about how we are responding to this incredibly tragic loss of life uh, that, that we experienced as a community just a few weeks ago. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Karen, we have a, a listener who has a question that I think is really, really appropriate at this point now that we've talked about both decisions to charge. Uh, Mikhail on Twitter says he doesn't understand charging the parents for their complicity, which he says he agrees with, but still wanting to try Ethan Crumbly as an adult. And I think that raises another dimension of, I guess, the deliberations here that I think you could probably shed some some light on. If you think of the, the, the I guess, continuity, I guess, of, of the charges here, that on one hand we're saying these parents are largely responsible for uh, Ethan Crumbly's access to a weapon and maybe uh, maybe entirely ex- uh, responsible for that, but that we believe he made an adult decision to commit the crimes with it. Is there a, is there a tension there between those two decisions that you will have to somehow reconcile perhaps uh, in the criminal justice process? No. Uh, it's true that he was their son, is their son. However, that how we treat him in the criminal justice system to fashion an appropriate uh, sentence and conviction that is a, appropriate for this level of crime has nothing to do with the fact 
that two people put a deadly weapon in the hands of somebody who they absolutely knew and had reason to believe would harm or kill somebody, regardless of whether or not it was their, their child, their parent, their son. So I, I don't, I don't think it's inconsistent and, you know, the, the laws aren't perfect here and I wish we had different ones, Mm -hmm. but my job is to approach these cases, looking at all the facts that I have at the moment and making the best decision possible, keeping in mind that, yes, I was elected to be a new prosecutor and looking at cases in a different way. But you know you know why else I was elected? Because I, I care and I'm compassionate and I'm going to be, I'm going to approach things with common sense. And I, again, just don't think at this moment anyone would have made a different decision given all the facts, again, some of which, most of which are not public. Right. And... And I believe that they're criminally culpable, and I and I think that once the, all, all the evidence is um, is is known to the public, I, I think most people would would too. And and you know, I, I'm not against guns, and I grew up in a home where there were guns. My dad's a hunter, still is, and I have several peers and friends and that that own guns, but they're responsible gun owners, and with that right comes responsibility. And there were there were absolutely no precautions in this case taken to make sure that that weapon did not end up in a place where it could be in a school shooting and murdering children running through for their lives. And, you know, I understand the intellectual conversation and it has to be we, we have to have it. But this is a mass shooting and it's the first one in our state and looking at all of the evidence that is before me that I see now, there's no, there's no way I would ever agree to take a chance that this individual be released when he was 21 years old mm. and any other path, any other decision that, that that's a potential outcome. Mm. And I just, that's absolutely wrong. And I, it's not a political decision. It really isn't. It's so far beyond politics. It's really just about what are we going to be as a community? What are our, what do we care about? And I care about keeping kids safe. And I think most people do too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I do want to give you a chance before we have to, to end the conversation to talk about the things that you think could be different that would make it easier to prevent these kind of things from happening in the future, but also, uh, things that that would um, uh, give you as a prosecutor uh, more leverage to, to to deal with these kinds of of crimes. You have said uh, publicly that that you just don't think Michigan's gun laws are adequate for situations like these. Uh, talk specifically about some of the things that you'd like to see change. Well, what gun laws? I, I they're really just aren't there are well, very few gun laws i mean i i'm not trying to be um casual about this in any way it, it's it's there 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 really there really are no substantial gun laws in michigan you you can't buy a gun um if you're not 18 um but you can be with a parent and and fire a gun and use a gun if you're with a parent and you're under 18 or or somebody who's 18 or older um as the prosecutor, I can charge people with felony firearm only if they possess a weapon and they have a prior felony. Uh, other than that, there aren't really, there's no safe, safe storage in Michigan. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Hmm. We do not require people to secure their weapons. And we're not talking about law enforcement. We're not talking about hunters, anybody. Once they're 18... They don't have to secure their weapons. And, you know, in my over 20 years of being an attorney in this state, our gun laws have gone the other way. You know, I don't see the, the logical connection between telling people and mandating you must act responsibly with a weapon that, and having it lead to you, you can't own a gun. Not, that just doesn't make sense to me, and, and I think it clouds the issue. I, as a state saying that we were, we're going to require you to do certain things with a deadly weapon 
And if you don't, you're going to be criminally negligent. I, I don't see that leading to you can't own a gun. I see that leading to we care about kids. We care about, you know, keeping people safe. And, you know, all we talk about all at this moment in time, for so many reasons and good reasons, is um, mental health. Yeah, we, we really have no restrictions unless somebody has been um, institutionalized, which is very difficult, um, on, on owning a gun. And I think everybody listening will, will agree with me that they know people who shouldn't own weapons. Yet there's nothing, uh, there's nothing in the law that, that uh, is an obstacle for them to own one and sometimes carry one. So, yeah, I just, I'm not sure when we say our gun laws, we really just don't have gun laws in Michigan. You know, and and it is one of the points that I keep making when we're talking about this now is that in almost every gun crime, the gun that's used, if it were traceable back to its beginning in the world, was the subject of a legal sale at some point. Somebody bought that gun legally, and somehow it ended up in the hands of somebody who commits a crime. And so little of our focus when we talk about gun laws is on that connection. How does that happen? Why does that happen? And how do you prevent that from happening? And it is responsible gun owners, I think, who... Uh, are the vast majority probably of of gun owners who need to to be more part of that conversation to say, look, I take care of my weapons. Just like you said, you know, people who own guns, you grew up in a home with people who owned guns and they were responsible with it. There, there is another set of Americans who aren't responsible and we don't, we don't do anything to make sure that they feel like they have to be responsible or that there are consequences for them when they're not? There's just no legal duty. Um, and, and telling the parents in this community or anyone that has suffered through a, a tragedy like this that, well, you, you know, you have civil remedies, you can sue, is just, it's, it's offensive. It, our laws represent what we think is right and wrong in our, in our country and in our community. That's what the law is for. And, what happened there is wrong. What, what those parents did is wrong. And by the way, it, it would be wrong if, if they bought a gun for somebody they, they knew whether it was their, their son or not. It was purchased as a Christmas present, and it was published that way. That was, that was something that was put out into the public by, a, by one of the parents. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's wrong. And, you know, I, I really didn't make decisions, and I don't. And I know sometimes others would say I should, based on what's going to be popular. Um, so when when I made the decision to charge the parents, when I made the decision to charge um, the shooter with with uh, terrorism, those were just things that made sense to me about what kind of place I want to live and what kind of community we what's right and wrong. Since then, it's it's there's been an outpouring of support for both decisions that has nothing to do with politics. It does not, it crosses political lines because it just makes sense. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to rest with just prosecuting this case. We have to be outspoken if we want things to change. We have to care enough to, to approach something differently I, I was on the, somebody asked me the other day, uh, well, you know, when we have, there will, obviously there will be another um, school shooting at some point in the country. And I stopped and said, no, wait a minute. I, that's, I'm not going to accept that truth. I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I'm going to do everything I can so that it doesn't happen again. Because guess what? It's really not, it's not a big lift here. It's not. Telling people that they have to be responsible with their weapons is not taking away a right to own a gun. It's not, it's not even close to that. It's really just the, the, the simplest of things that we teach our kids every single day to be responsible, to care about others. Um, and, and so, you know, that this is such 
a terrible, tragic event. And I understand why people want to talk about it and it's newsworthy. Mm-hmm. But we're we're living it here and we're 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 talking to families and parents and and I just think as a mother <clears throat> One of the places you just don't worry about your kids is when they're in school. And so to have that taken away from parents and kids, not just in Michigan, but all over the country, when this, when this is made public, um, that's, that's a serious tragedy, and we have to make it a priority to fix. Our kids need to feel safe to go to school. Okay. Karen McDonald, uh, Oakland County Prosecutor. I gotta say, just just hearing you describe the things that you're thinking about really portrays, I think, the the, the emotional anguish that even you are feeling about uh, about all of this, and that's a very Absolutely. important part of this as well. I think we are all feeling uh, exactly the same right now. But I really appreciate you coming on and discussing this with us on Detroit today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about guns and gun laws and safety. We're going to hear from a University of Michigan public health expert who studies gun violence uh, about how mass shootings affect entire communities, and he's going to offer some advice about how to cope with this kind of tragedy. We'll also get to you, the listeners, on the phones and on social media. Dory and Warren, Carolyn and Royal Oak, Larry in Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Mass shootings are always shocking and heartbreaking when we think of the victims and their loved ones. And you just heard Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald talking very emotionally about how those feelings, the feelings of victims and loved ones, play into the decisions she has to make as the prosecutor. But these kind of things are also maddening when we think of the inaction and the willful neglect that allowed them to happen on a regular basis in our country. But we're learning here in Southeast Michigan right now that when they happen in our own community, it's really different. There's something about this month's shooting in Oxford that is especially traumatizing and really terrifying. Maybe it's the proximity of the attack to all of our homes and lives. Maybe it's the fact that so many local schools continue to cancel in-person classes because of threats in the wake of what happened in Oxford. But I think it's fair to say we're all hurting in some really different and new ways this December. Of course, the people directly affected by the shooting are experiencing something most of us can't even imagine right now. Imagine this holiday season bearing one of your children because they were shot to death at school. But even beyond that, the whole community here in Metro Detroit is experiencing a level of collective trauma and fear that I think reframes the way we think about all of these things, gun laws, schools, safety, the whole gambit. My next guest is someone who studies violence, especially teen violence and its effects. Dr. Mark Zimmerman of the University of Michigan School of Public Health is also a psychologist who knows about how the human mind reacts to these kinds of events. Dr. Zimmerman joins us now to talk about what we're all experiencing and how we ought to cope. 
Dr. Zimmerman, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So what effects do these kind of mass shootings have on a larger community like ours here in, in Southeast Michigan? I think we're all feeling similar things, but I want to sort of talk about the collective impact of something like this happening so close to all of our homes. Um, you know, before, before I go there, um, if you don't mind, I just want to put this in, in, in somewhat, in some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm guided by, uh, what Albert Einstein once said, and that is insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Karen McDonald was sort of saying that, you know, this, we need to do things that just make sense. It's, it, you know, we, we not to accept the next shooting, um, and just to get a, a sense of uh, of the context, and, and it's true that the closer it is, uh, the more traumatic it is. But uh, uh, we have had uh, eight and a, about eight and a half incidents per year from 2000 to 2009, and from 2010 to 2019, there have been almost 22 incidents per year. Incidents of uh, mass shootings in schools. So. Um, it's the other thing that's uh, important to realize that when, when these events like this occur, they are certainly traumatic in, in a broader way because they seem somewhat random. They seem somewhat, we all seem somewhat vulnerable. Uh, but um, most uh, school shootings are certainly homicides, but almost 30% of school shootings are suicides and 4% are suicide homicide combined. So th- we have to put this, whole idea of, uh, of firearms and what we need to do about shootings in a, in a larger context. The other um, point I think that's really important to make is to thinking about um, school shootings as uh, unique to a school. Uh, and while there are certainly certain characteristics about uh, shootings that happen in a school, uh, the, the uh, precursors, the antecedents, the the thing, the the issues that may predict that event happening in that school, often occur outside of the walls of that school. Mm. Now, certainly, are things in the school that uh, are relevant: uh, school climate, uh, bullying. And we have climate interventions programs. We have bullying prevention programs, but also social emotional learning for kids. We we got away from that. Uh, over over many uh, several years ago, because we wanted to make sure that kids tested well uh, in reading, writing, and arithmetic, and of course those are extremely important. This is not to minimize that, but it is important to say that social emotional learning is also important. How to work with people, how to control your own emotions, how to respond to conflicts, how to diffuse attention, how to cope with uh, different situations are important developmental uh, issues that also need attention and what better place than, than in a school. Uh, and, and there could certainly be um, ways to integrate social emotional learning in reading uh, and reading comprehension. So I just want to say something about, you know, the, the, the real way to think about um, this, I think is more ecological, uh, what happens in the family. And we heard all about that just today and, before I did, uh, but parents are responsible for children. And I, I don't want to speak to the legal ramifications of uh, bringing these um, parents, um, you know, <clears throat> to, to court because I'm not an attorney, but as adults, we create the world the kids live in. And, and so not only as parents, but as other adults in the community, we need to pay attention to the kind of world we're creating for our, our children. And uh, so I would put that responsibility, a more psychological kind of responsibility and social responsibility on all of us to take uh, some uh, responsibility for what kind of world we want kids to, to live in. Mm. Uh, the, the, the other thing is just around gun storage um, is uh, 74% uh, of, of school shootings, the gun was acquired from home or from a, a relative's home. So uh, I 100% agree with the uh, prosecutor, with Karen McDonald, that um, 
we can make do lots of common sense things without taking people's rights away about owning a gun and having guns. Um, we were able to reduce uh, car crash deaths by 70% over the last 30 to 40 years, yep. uh, despite the fact that people have drive more, um, drive more often, drive more miles. Um, and so we, we have to be able to do the same thing with, our, with firearms. Yeah. So I, I know that didn't directly answer your question, but no, I think okay. it's important for listeners to understand the, the larger context. Also, we know that kids who are exposed to violence in their communities also have uh, negative sequelae that occur, uh, mental distress, uh, fear, anxiety, uh, and those things play themselves out when they go to school. And then you lay on this all these issues, the pandemic, and not having been in school and then coming back to school um, so it, it, it's, there's no simple answers, uh, but we really do have to have the political will to kind of think, uh, create the bold changes that we need to make to, um, to prevent these kind of things from happening again. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's, uh, start today with Dory in Warren. Dory, what's on your mind? Good af- Good morning. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Stephen, for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, sir, for listening from your University of Michigan. Um, first off, I want to say that it is absolutely irrational to charge the parents and charge the young man as an adult. Mm. These he cannot be an adult and blame the parent. You you have to pick which one who is responsible. What bothers me the most is I have heard nothing about holding the school district responsible except for civil matters. And quite frankly, I think until we start holding school districts re- districts responsible for, hey, not flagging this kid who was clearly asking for help based on the information released to the public. Um, But based on that little tiny bit of information, Mm. it seems to me that the school district should also, the the administrators, the teacher, I don't care who, but the school district itself needs to be held accountable um, as uh, as contributing to invo- involuntary manslaughter. Mm, that's uh, boy, Dory. That's a that's a really interesting point, and I'm not sure how the practical end of that would even work. But I think that there are a lot of people asking these questions about responsibility, and and your first part here, the question of responsibility for the parents uh, standing alongside adult responsibility for the child is one that I think is really important. I did ask Karen McDonald about that. She she was, I thought, very um, very upfront about separating the two and saying that they don't have anything to do with one another, and that's as a legal matter. But Dr. Zimmerman, I wonder if you can talk about the level of responsibility from a social and, I guess, developmental perspective that we're talking about here. We are talking about some responsibility for the parents, but also adult responsibility for the child. What what, what do you make of that? Well, uh, you know, I, 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 I loathe going down paths that uh, I'm <laughs> not an expert on, sure. um, but, but, let, I, but let, me, let me talk a little bit about uh, the human brain. Sure. We, we do know that the frontal cortex is where most of the if then um, hypothesis generating, the problem solving, the uh, uh, basically what we call the executive functioning occurs. We also know uh, from research that the frontal cortex is not fully developed until somebody is about 25 years old. It's a little younger sometimes for, there's a range, but 25, 24 to 26 ish is the uh, area. And um, boys' brains, um, develops somewhat slower than uh, uh, girls' brains uh, or young women, young men. So, um, so in that sense, um, you know, uh, are are we? F- the question then, of course, becomes: at, at what point do 
those neurons need to be firing to be, you know, adult enough or not adult enough. And again, that is something that uh, is uh, a legal question uh, that I really can't answer. Uh, so in, in that sense, um, I don't really have a response. I do suggest, though, that um, we need to help all of us be better problem solvers. I mean, think about uh, when you do go to work uh, and who you work with and, and how we behave with each other. And, and we're all adults, presumably, at work. Um, but how many times have we said, is there an adult in the room here? Uh, because of the bickering that might go on or because of how people interact with one another. Mm -hmm. Well, kids see that in their homes. Kids see that on television. And so they learn that way. Kids don't aren't um, uh, born um, you know, that with, uh, it's more like a, a blank slate because, you know, when we hear a little kid sort of say something cute that's a very adult-like, they're not born to say that. They're hearing it from the adults around them. And it's the same thing with the kind of behaviors. I mean, um, that goes back to the responsibility that we have as adults to help that child um, connect those neurons and, and develop and support them as they uh, test out new things in their lives, as they experience something. My niece once said to me, you, you know, uh, the difference between you and me when she when she was in high school, the difference between you and me is you've done it before, I haven't. Mm. And so they're doing it for the first time. Well, if they don't know how to do it the first time, where are they going to get some ideas about how to do that? From television, from their parents, from peers, from other adults in their lives. And um, we also know that kids still pay attention and connect to adults and, and look up to adults of all sorts of different kinds in their lives. And so we have to be conscious about what, what messages are we also sending to those kids. So in that sense, I would say, yes, we are responsible. Um, in this particular case, again, that's, those are legal questions that I can't really go down. Sure, sure. Um, in, in, with school shootings, and again, the, the prevention, I think, goes beyond the school building. It includes the school building. Schools are, in some states are mandated to have school resource officers. We don't have any real evidence whether or not they deter these kind of shootings or not. There are um, uh, some schools have mandated uh, bullying prevention. Uh, some and some districts have uh, mandating mandated um, school safety teams. So there there are different ways and things schools can certainly do. And again, the culpability issue is a legal question that I can't go down. But there are three events around surrounding a school shooting. And one is all the prevention things that I've been really focusing on as, as a public health professor and as the co-director of the new Institute on Firearm Injury Prevention here at the University of Michigan. These are the things we're really trying to focus on is, is preventing these things from happening without interfering with people's rights to own, um, own firearms in America. We're not going down that path. That is... Um, uh, you know, is just a, a no-win situation. We're trying to use science to focus on uh, what are some of the solutions yeah. um, and seeing what are some of the evidence-based things we can do. It's a very complex problem. There are no simple answers. Um, and uh, and what's, with the other thing that just is interesting epidemiologically, we, we do have a firearm, uh, 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 firearm death uh, rate in America that has surpassed car crashes in 2017. More people are dying from firearms than by um, cars than by crashes. Vehicle, yeah. um, so th th this is a bigger problem than school shootings. School shootings only make up 1% of all firearm deaths. That isn't, doesn't mean we should not pay attention to it. That just means that there it's a complex problem that has, has is going to have to have lots more research than we've paid attention to yeah. uh, in the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, we, need to take a, yeah, okay. we need to take another quick break. Sure. Uh, and sure. then when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Mark Zimmerman of the University of Michigan about this. We'll also continue to hear from you, Mike and Wald Lake, Carolyn Royal Oak, Larry in Detroit. Uh, we'll get to some social media comments as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Zimmerman, University of Michigan Professor of Public Health and Director of the Prevention Research Center of Michigan and the CDC-funded Youth Violence Prevention Center. We're talking about the mass shooting in Oxford at the high school there just a few weeks ago. We talked earlier in the program with Karen McDonald, the Oakland County prosecutor, about the decisions that she's making in the wake of that shooting. We want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter comments there. I want to go to Tony in Oxford next. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi. So my son is a student at Oxford High School and uh, was there at the day of the tragedy. It's been a, it's been a traumatic couple weeks, needless to say. Um, I, you know, I appreciate the guest, guest position on the fact that it's, it's such, a, such a broad topic and there's no easy solution. What I want to say is, is I'm a gun owner, and in my opinion, it was way, way, way too easy for me to purchase my gun. Um, and I think that contributes uh, to the type of situation that we're talking about here. Hmm. So, so talk about what you mean, Tony, uh, when you say that it was too easy for you to purchase your gun. So I walk in a retail store. I follow the steps. Uh, they do the background checks as necessary, and then within an hour or so, I'm, I'm walking out with the firearm. And to me, you know, nobody asks uh, any questions, hey, did I just get fired from my job? Uh, nobody checks with anybody that I know. Uh, there was no waiting period at all. And, and you know, is, is that kind of thing going to completely solve the problem? Probably not. But if those types of steps were instituted, uh, you know, it might put somebody just a few steps further away from being able to obtain that firearm and, and you know, cause the tragedy like we just saw. Hmm. Tony, I, I really appreciate the call and, and you sharing that experience. And also, of course, our, our thoughts go out to you as you try with the rest of the Oxford community to make sense of what 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 happened, uh, Dr. Zimmerman? Th- this is an example of somebody, a responsible gun owner, saying, "Look, there's, there's something amiss here. That that uh, it's it's too simple to just get our hands on on guns." Uh, yeah, let me just say, uh, my my heart goes out to you, and and I, I do want to come back to the, the you asked me from the very beginning about trauma. Mm-hmm. I also talked about just a, a few seconds ago about. Um, the three aspects of a school shooting, and one is the prevention I talked about, just so that any listeners who were interested, what are the other two were? One was the active shooting and the first responder uh, moment. That's a second part. And then the third part is the trauma uh, part that um, you have, you asked me about the, to start the half, the half hour. So um, in terms of responsibility, there are over 300 million guns in individual um uh, individuals' hands, individual uh, citizens, not not counting military guns. Uh, and yes, um, most people who own guns are responsible gun owners. Absolutely. Um, are there policies that could go, get in, uh, be in place that uh, might reduce that? We have uh, what's called ERPO or red flag, or uh, ERPO stands for extreme risk protection, where if somebody is a risk to themselves or others, we don't know how they work. Uh, Twenty or so states have what those. We don't know how they're implemented. We don't know if they're implemented the same in a, in a one jurisdiction or another <clears throat> within the same state with the same law. So evaluating those kinds of sh- strategies uh, is something that uh, I think we need to invest in as a society. Uh, for 30 years, the, the federal government wasn't even allowed to really fund firearm research. That's been lifted. Um, uh, I think after it was after the Sandy Hook uh, and then the Parkland shootings, mm-hmm. um, the Congress has allocated $25 million to do some research, to um, 
the, the research that we spend on, on cars is um, uh, the, the amount pales uh, is so much more. Uh, we've spent billions and that's what's going to take. There's technological solutions. There's um, testing out different kinds of, um, of policies. There's behavioral trainings. We don't even know what are the best gun safety training uh, strategies. We know pretty well what are useful for helping a kid learn how to drive a car. Uh, and we focused on, on kids because it's the first time they're driving. And we know that that's the time where most car crashes occur at, in the younger ages. So the similar kind of thing, we, we definitely need more research. And I, I know that's very frustrating for listeners to hear, but, um, but we, we really need to invest in this. And I think it's going to take gun owners mm -hmm. to realize that, that that research is not a threat to their right to own a gun or to uh, responsible ownership. And I think we need people like your, uh, the caller to sort of say, you know, we need to, we need a, a, a we need to speak out as, as citizens to say um, we can't be held hostage anymore. This is something that isn't political. It isn't right or left. It isn't Democrat, Republican. This is about the safety of our society, safety of our families, safety of our children and our communities. Um, and when we're ready to do that is I think when, when those changes occur and, and it's kind of like seatbelts when they first came out, nobody wanted to wear them. Right and now, nobody gets in a car without them. Yeah. So, uh, let me just quickly say if I have two minutes, I, we were actually out okay. of time, unfortunately, okay. right. Dr. Zimmerman, but, right. but I'm really Thank grateful you. for the time that you were able to give us today. Really great Thank uh, you. insight. Thank here. you. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow when we're going to kick off a series of conversations looking back at 2021 with a look at the year in COVID-19 news and developments. I'm going to say to the callers who are still on the line, go to Twitter and put your comments there. There's a really active conversation going on about uh, today's show. This is 1019 WDTFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. <laughs>